Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. I am not built for this heat. My goodness. <laughs> you thought you were moving to a cold state. 111 today. 111 <laughs> today in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And it's it's going to be bad for the rest of the week, too, I hear. It's going to be, we got a couple more hot days in. But then you know what's going to happen, Steve? It's going to flip and it's going to be 40 below zero before you know it. And you know what? I'll take it. <laughs> you can always put clothes on. You can only take so much off before people get upset with you. Yeah, no kidding. Well, my husky's <laughs> inside. Looks like he's been killed by the heat. He just he comes outside long enough to pee, goes back inside, and flops <laughs> on the floor. One eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. You're on. Ask Noah. Good evening. Hey, Noah. Are you able to hear me? I can. Hey, man. Uh, this is Jonathan uh, Colin from Arkansas. Actually, I- I've got a question. Um, you said there was a project for the Raspberry Pi that you could um, basically set up a, a RTSP stream or something that you would boot up and just show like a grid or a selection of cameras. I'm looking to see if there's something out there for that now. I've got a DVR set up for my parents. They have no, you know, they're all they want to do is be able to look at a screen and see a video stream. And I'm about an hour and a half away, so if something goes wrong, I just simply want something that they can unplug, plug back up, and it's going to go to those screens. And I've not found anything since that would be that um, stupid proof. <laughs> Um, so when you say stupid proof, where are your concerns? What kind of breakage are you thinking might happen? Well, I mean, I'm not gonna. I mean, I'm not gonna be there. So let's say that the let's say that the power goes out. Let's say that the you know uh, the the Wi-Fi connection happens to happens to die out for the time being. You know, I, I just want it to be something to where there's no. I want it to be something to where I'm going to be hard coding the static IPs mm-hmm. and everything and the feeds into the box itself and just simply say, okay, guys, if in doubt, just unplug the power and plug it back up and it's going to come back on and you're going to start seeing the same feeds. I mean, got it. we're talking about two cameras. Yep, I got it. So what you're what you're looking for is a is a is an open source project called RPISurf, R P I S U R V. And it is a Raspberry Pi surveillance station and we use it all the time in production. And what I like about it is it does the following. So you typically have IP cameras and they might be ONVIF and they're sending their RTSP feeds around a network. And so you might have an NVR and that can be anything from 
zone minder to Sonology surveillance station. So you're recording those cameras. Okay, now we got that down. But you're talking about a live view. You want to see them. You want to plug a monitor in and you just want to see the cameras. Now, that's not an uncommon thing. And the other part of that is separating live view from the recording has an advantage from the standpoint that if one goes down, you still have the other. So that is to say you have your business or your home and it becomes unprotected because the recorder, the network video recorder went down. Well, you can still see the live view of your cameras. Similarly, maybe the live view of the cameras go down for a little bit. At least they're still recording and you can go back and look at those recordings. To your point about you want it to be idiot proof. It is a config file. You put in the IP addresses. It connects to the RTSP streams. Bob's your uncle. You have, and it'll automatically matrix them into, so if you have four cameras, it divides it into four. If you have eight cameras, it divides it into eight. We, we kind of, I don't know, brand package up market, whatever you want to call it. The product will take a Raspberry Pi. We pair it with an Argon one, which gives us a full size HDMI and a type C power supply. And then we sell it as a display station. And so what we tell customers is you can run nine cameras. Now, the truth is we've run our Pi serve in the shop in our sandbox with like 16 cameras and it seems to work okay but i've told people anytime you get more than nine cameras unless you have something like a massive monitor they become postage stamp size anyway i think they're pointless so we've always told people if you have more than nine cameras move into two now that's more information than you need because you said you're only doing camera two cameras but for what you're looking for our serve will 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 meet your needs absolutely it will Cool. Well, then that, that's what I need. Like I say, there it's a driveway and it's their front yard. So if somebody pulls in and they're in the back of the house or they're some, I can put it in a couple of spots and they're going to be able to see it. That's what I need. All right, man. I'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. It'll be out uh, as soon as we're done with the episode. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it very much. You bet. Appreciate the calls. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Steve, should we get into some feedback? Absolutely. Our first piece of feedback comes in tonight from the Geek Lab. It's from the Walking Penguin, and he says, Good evening, Noah and Steve. I'm trying to help a friend out because he wants to get into Linux, but Arch really burned him. I've been looking at putting him on Linux Lite, but I was wondering if Farron OS is still around. It's a beginner distro like Mint, but more Debian-based. Your thoughts. So, Steve, I want to set this question up by saying that you got my dad into Arch. And while my dad is not a very technical person, it absolutely meted his needs to solve a problem that I'd been trying to solve for like five years. So you get credit there. He did come back to me, though, a few days ago, and he's like, oh, no. There is a lot of rough edges. This is very not user-friendly. And so what he was talking about is there, there are something like you, there's no decisions, right? They're very non-opinionated. You just get raw packages. So nobody's there to kind of tweak and take off the rough edges and or kind of polish everything for you. That's kind of left to you. And I think that's both a blessing and a curse. But I think we can understand why Walking Penguin's friend might get burnt out if he's trying Arches as first distro, huh? Maybe. Um, I I have, everybody ends up having a different experience with Linux. Like if you've listened to any of the other uh, Linux broadcasters out there, you'll hear people having this problem with GNOME or that problem with KDE or my problem with Matrix or whatever. Mm. We all seem to hit different bugs. And so how that relates to the idea of running Arch is that here at my house with the dozen plus computers and laptops and all the various devices running Arch, haven't run into that. And these are machines that are used by my son and my wife, who 
My son thinks he's technical. My wife is absolutely <laughs> will absolutely tell you she's not technical. Um, you know, she can install a package, but that that's the end of it. So I, I think your mileage may vary based on all kinds of things. I will say that uh, if you if you have a problem, it's a lot harder for you to debug it in Arch than other places if you don't have a basis of knowledge, right? Because all of these packages are just upstream packages, right? They come directly from the developer. If something like decides to uh, disappear on you, you have to go and try and figure out why. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, Ubuntu has the nice little crash thing that pops up and is like, hey, Firefox has crashed or whatever. And there's some sort of bug report that they try to do with it. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely that. Um, you'll, you won't get me to argue that uh, Arch Linux won't work for people. I just think that uh, it lets you, it, it's a chainsaw that lets you cut a piece of paper with it. And if you're silly enough to cut a piece of paper with a chainsaw, it'll let you do that. You know, to your point, Steve, Valve made a, a very calculated investment in Arch and it's done nothing but pay off in dividends, right? There's literally, I, I, I am continually shocked and surprised at the flawless experience that is Steam OS on the Steam Deck. I mean, it's fantastic. Other than the only bug I've ever run into that would be a problem for non-technical people is when you try to do a system restore, Yeah, I don't know if it tries to reset before it wipes the account or something goes quite out of order. And so if you don't have an internet connection, you can't get back into it. And of course, if you can't get into it, you can't connect to Wi-Fi. So you're kind of in a loop. And the way around that is to plug in a hardwired connection and then it's fine. And that only affects you if you're resetting it and you're setting it up at the same user and you don't have a wired internet connection. So it's, it's a fairly esoteric set of circumstances. And other than that, you would think it's just as polished as, I mean, it is just as polished as any other appliance like device. And that's Arch. Yeah. Yep, I definitely wouldn't say that if you want a, a low learning curve, Arch is for you. I, I'm 100% not saying that, <laughs> just to be clear for mm-hmm, the internet mm-hmm. out there. But um, I think that it has a lot to offer. But, you know, now we're getting a little bit of a field from what the question was. It's essentially, you know, what is a beginner distro? I guess the my my counter question is, what does a beginner, beginner distro mean? Mm. Um, you know, I have deployed a bunch of endless OS uh, machines, including to my sister-in-law who loves it. Like Mm -hmm. she lives hours, like 20 hours away from us. And I handed her this laptop and it just, it doesn't break because it's an immutable OS. And, you know, on the odd time she needs help with something like it's trying to be super helpful and add a printer wrong because it does (laughs) that from time to time. Um, I put tail scale on it. And so I can just hop in there and help her out. But I'll tell you, uh, she ran Ubuntu on the laptop for four years. And I would say every three to four months I had to connect with her. um, Ever since putting her on Endless, I've had one call. Um, And it was just simply like her printer changed its IP and that caused some confusion. She ended up with like double entries in the the printing menu because Mm -hmm. it auto-detected a new printer, a new printer (laughs) on the network. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I... If I'm going for like, hey, don't break it kind of appliance level Linux, I definitely like the immutable OSs for people because they layer flat pack on top of it. Otherwise, what would you suggest? So I'm going to second what you said. I think so. In fact, if we bring this full circle, the reason that SteamOS 
is so effective on the Steam Deck is precisely because it's immutable, right? The only reason that restore feature I'm talking about works at all is because they got everything dialed in, they locked it down, they said, this is forever the way it will be until we push an update, and now you can play inside the playground as much as you like. When you run into trouble, dump all the sand out, put all the sand back in, you're back to ground zero, things are great. And that is absolutely the bumper car way to go. And if you think about it, that is largely the way that iOS, Android, all these other all these other ROM-based devices are, right? They have a starting point, a static starting point that you can reset to, and then you build kind of on top of that. And so this is just the most natural way to do that in a desktop environment. So I'm gonna put Endless OS at the top, start them out there, and as their needs grow, then move. The other thing, you so you asked an interesting question, Steve. You said, what does that mean when you talk about an, a beginner-friendly distro? And here's how I would define that. I would define a beginner-friendly distro as the distro that when the person, not if, when the person has a question or a problem, they have the, the widest possible ability to fix that problem on their own. So the reality is as much as some of us would prefer that people just come to us and let us help the problem, other people will say, I don't want to sign up to be technical support for everybody that I've ever given advice to, so I, I don't want that. But at the end of the day, there's going to be the time where they're sitting, the user sitting up at 3, 4 in the morning and they're like, oh, I have this problem. Well, I can't call Steve right now. I can't text Noah right now because it's 3, 4 in the morning and that would be not good. So how do I fix this? If they're able to hop on Google or hop on DuckDuckGo and say how to install X on blah, 90% of the time, if they're on a Linux distro, they're going to arrive at an article describing how to do it on Ubuntu. So Ubuntu is kind of the place that I start from and say, okay, if there's a reason to go outside of this and absolutely the, hey, an immutable operating system that's just going to work for them all the time and has all of the stuff built in because I've set it up ahead of time, absolutely checks the box of reasons to step outside of this. But if you don't have a reason to step outside of it, Ubuntu is kind of a nice starting base because there's such a wide range of community support. Jump in any chat room and you ask somebody, hey, my so-and-so installed this Linux thing. I don't really understand how it works chances are they're going to guess that it's Ubuntu and it's an Ubuntu base and you're probably going to be able to find a solution. The other thing is, because there's so many eyes and because there's so many users on it, a lot of this stuff has gotten worked out. To that point, Martin Wimpress does a fantastic job with the Ubuntu Mate project. And it, it, if, anytime you go looking for a software package or a project or a thing, go find the one that's scratching the developer's itch. F identify your itch, go find a developer that's scratching the same itch, and go look at the project that they did to solve it, and that will probably be your answer. Martin Wimpress got sick of being technical support for his family. He got sick and tired of them downloading a thing and having to walk through 19 different different steps to get there. The other problem, to be a blessed Ubuntu distro, there are restrictions. There are things that they put in place. So he had to carefully navigate making it so that it meets all the requirements to be a blessed distro, but at the same time, all the rough edges are gone. You get into a welcome screen. I want this software, that software, that software, that software. Is it proprietary? Is it open source? Does it have a repo? Doesn't matter. You just click on the buttons and it installs all the stuff and sets it up for you. I'm used to Mac OS. Click a button. It looks like Mac OS. I'm used to Windows. Click on a button. Looks like Windows. I'm used to, I don't really care. Click on a button. It looks like traditional GNOME. So they, they have all of that stuff baked into Ubuntu Mate. The other thing I'll say about it, I have more and more as I've continually moved away from various different services and stuff, I have a need to be able to get into these accounts that want me to be in a predictable location. Well, if I'm going to be in a predictable location, you know where that location is going to be? On a rented VPS. And I want X to go into that box. You know, it runs perfectly as a remote cloud workstation. 
Ubuntu Mate. Works fine with X2Go, has all the software I need, pre-installed, all the rest of it. So it's a fantastic experience. So I might start with I might start with Endless OS because I think if it gets them everything they need, that's going to be the most painful free experience that you're going to have. If you want to give them a little bit more control, take some of the handcuffs off, maybe look at something like Ubuntu, Ubuntu Mate. Then I might encourage you to look at Fedora. So Fedora is interesting from a couple of standpoints. First of all, it's a flat pack first distro. So they're going to have a really easy onboarding to Flatpak, which is becoming more and more the de facto way to publish software on Linux. The other thing is, and I hope I'm not spilling any beans here, but this has become the distro that Red Hat is standardizing on for their own employees. So they're moving away from regular Red Hat on Red Hat workstations and moving over to Fedora for people to use as their. And so this idea that it's some, it's it's too bleeding edge or it's not reliable and it's it's a b utter bunk. It, it absolutely is capable of being a full fledged workstation. People do it all the time, and they've they've come a long way in trimming a lot of those things so that I wouldn't say as equal to Ubuntu, but pretty dang close to where if you have a problem and put it on out on, on a search engine, you're likely to arrive at a thing that will help you fix that problem. So I would throw that in there. And then last, and this is really more of a personal preference, more than I think this is what you should do, but I have a special place in my heart for Kubuntu, in part because I had a bad experience with GNOME. The guy that was sitting next to me at, at, in the moment of my crises said, have you considered trying KDE? And I installed it that day and I've never looked back. It has worked flawlessly ever since. And it weirdly, as this is going to sound, has the has the has the vibes of my early Windows, you know, 98 days where I knew where all the buttons were and I knew where all the bones were buried. I kind of get that same experience, except, you know, I don't have to reinstall all the time. It doesn't crash all the time. And so it's it's approachable to a Windows user. And at the same time, it has all the modern features that you would expect out of a Linux distro. Anything else we should add for people that are looking, or maybe not just a friend, but just in the way of, you know, how do you help your sister-in-law when she needs support? You said you had Tailscale, so it's connected to your network, but how do you actually access the box or do things for her? So I normally I just SSH in because, mo because it's all done by Flatpak, you can do that on the command line. Um, there is a... Um, remote, there's a bunch of different remote desktop softwares that you can use. Used to use, um, we've talked about it in Rust the past. Desk? Yes, thank you. Um, I've heard that the Wayland support is coming along, but uh, we moved to AnyDesk just because it supported Wayland and I needed something at the time that I shipped her because it was so far away. So when I need to and I can't get it done via the command line, like when the printer is being particularly difficult, um, I just send her a message and say, "Hey, can you send me the the you know passcode?" Just like any other remote desktop, it gives you like a six-digit code that you can give to somebody that will then connect you to their desktop. So, two bit in the chat room says a beginner distro tricks the user into thinking they were running Windows. So, true story. About seven years ago or eight years ago, something like that. It was right when Canonical was making the transition into Unity. I absolutely loaded a a, a box up with the latest version of Ubuntu. And I went and told people it was the latest version of Windows, put a Windows background on it and just set up. And we were doing an event and I, and I just had a computer says, hey, check out the latest version of Windows and got people's reaction. It was hilarious. Wow, this is so much faster. Oh, I really like this little animation. I like how the background changes or the color, you know, whatever overlay thing kind of changes depending on what I set the background to. People are noticing all these really, some stuff that I hadn't even noticed about Ubuntu, but you just tell them something else and they're like, oh yeah, it's the greatest thing ever when there's name recognition. Now you tell them it's a Linux distro and they go, what? Some sort of nerd geeky thing? That's terrible. 
Well, there's that. There's also an issue of like, as soon as they get to trying to run Word or something like that, (laughs) there's a problem. Yeah, it's going to be a bad day. That's why it works as a mall demo, not working in practicality. But to his point, if people, if it is approachable enough where people know where the buttons are and they they can figure out what they're doing, they're fine with it. If it looks something completely foreign to them or looks, you know, very techy or something like that, it's probably going to leave a bad taste in their mouth. Hey, I wanted to take a moment to highlight the bat command. So we'll have more information for you in the show notes, podcast.snoshow.com. But the bat command is essentially the cat command with some syntax highlighting. And get this, git integration. And so it'll scan what the, the file is, and it is able to highlight different programming languages. It'll also do line numbering, so you can debug and, and troubleshoot, and also allows you to output the text format. And so you can choose size and color and those sorts of things. And then the coolest thing is it can integrate with Git. So you're able to see file modifications. And that, of course, can be really helpful when you're tracking code changes. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can find more about BAT at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of August 20th, 2023, Here's the Linux and open source news. Debian has turned 30 years old. And in other distro news, Dev1 version 5.0 has been released. And OpenMandriva LX 23.08 has been released. In other releases, LibreOffice 7.6 has been released. Wine 8.14 is out. The Budgie desktop has released 10.8. And in upcoming releases, OBS Studio 30 has reached its beta release as has GNOME 45. In other industry news, the Software Freedom Conservancy has put out a press release recommending that open source projects stop using Zoom due to changes to its data collection policies. SUSE has gone private again, and Facebook has announced its plan to release an open source code generating AI model. And lastly for this week, Microsoft open sources its Onyx script for Python machine learning models. We talk a lot about being privacy first and people to Googleifying themselves and all the rest of that. And our very own Steve Ovens just went through this process, or I should say maybe is in the process of going through this process, switching from a traditional Android phone over to Graphene OS. And so, Steve, I thought we would take some time and we could kind of dig through and understand what your experience was. And so I I guess to get us started, I want to start because if people haven't heard past episodes or haven't heard you kind of talk about this, you have a slightly different approach to the way that you use your mobile phone than the way that maybe um, some of the rest of us do from the standpoint that you don't really feel the need to have it attached to your hip at all times. So I guess, how do you view that sort of technology in your life? So I'll, I guess I'll preface this for people that always whinge about battery life. I, I go two and a half days without charging my phone. That, <laughs> that's how frequently it gets used. So to give you some perspective. Um, so I have a Pixel 6a um, that I just got last month because side rant. The, I have a Nexus, uh, sorry, I have a Pixel 4a and there's literally nothing wrong with it. In fact, I use it more still than my 6A. Okay. Um, it's it's just out of the support from Google. Mm-hmm. So it just stopped getting support. But I still find myself picking it up and using it more than the, the 6, 
which just kind of like it honestly just sits beside my bed 95% mm -hmm. of the time. Um, so you were saying, how do I see the technology? Yeah. So even though I, I live and breathe technology every day for work, I have what most people would consider a sizable home lab. I've got a decent amount of, like I'm a decent data hoarder. <laughs> I've got all the things, uh, you know, home assistant, home automation, stuff like that. For me, carrying technology around with me is not even remotely interesting. Mm. My, my Garmin watch, which is a running watch, is as close as I get to that. And that's just simply because it's a big pain to just remember to put on my watch when I go for a run. So like there's a little device called a running pod and it gives you okay. extra metrics on how is your cadence and, and you know, how quickly does your foot leave the ground and like a bunch of other stuff like that. It's a really great thing. I use it when I remember it. The problem is it's about the size of a dime that clips onto the back of your pants. And if I remember to take it off, it's gone into the wash more than once. If I remember <laughs> to take it off, I usually don't remember to put it on. And so I wear my running watch because I don't ever remember to go put it on before I leave. So how does that relate to the phone? I don't really interact with any kind of phone or technology outside of my Steam Deck after I'm done work hours. Um, just as a general rule, I go wow. outside and I do other things. Um, so I, as long as I'm within Bluetooth range of, of my 6A, I get like pings on my watch, mm -hmm. but that's as close to being near my phone as it is. And I can only, there's only like six canned responses that you can do, so mm -hmm. I can receive it. It's basically like a read-only phone. So I, I think it's important to at least have that understanding because obviously if people are approaching it or their needs are different, then obviously, you know, your mileage may vary, so to speak. So you purchase the new Pixel and you decide immediately to flash Graphene OS on it. Let's start at the beginning. How did the flashing process go? How was it to get Graphene OS installed? Oh, it was fine. I've done so much flashing either on phones or firmware of various devices. So I was expecting it to be a little bit harder. Actually, the hardest thing was... I had to go and get like a Chrome based browser in order for it to work. <laughs> um, I, I'm actually not kidding. My, my Google Chrome install is like crusty. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, a year and a half out of date. And it's like, yo dude, we can't do this. <laughs> so, well, once you, once you have it, it's really fantastic because you plug it in, you go to a website, click on a button and a few minutes later, your phone has been erased and a new phone has been born. Yeah, there's still a little bit that you have to do uh, in terms of like, you have to actually go and unlock the bootloader Okay. Um, inside of the menu, right? So like you have to put it in developer mode and then you have to do a bunch of dancing around to, to get the option for the OEM bootloader unlock. Mm. And this actually led me to returning the first phone that I got because I could not, despite trying and trying, could not get the OEM uh, unlock to ungray out. And there's really? all kinds of people on the internet that have the same problem. Mm -hmm. There's people like, okay, go get the Verizon version because, you know, it's it's uh you know unpatched or whatever there's an exploit mm -hmm. you can do this or that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. other people are like oh just leave it on for like a week and it eventually fixes itself and i did all of that stuff and eventually after about two weeks i returned the phone i'm like you know it it sold as bootloader unlocked i can't do it and mm -hmm. there was no term no problem returning it second phone that came in was fine okay so you you you, you get it in you get it flashed things are okay what has been your experience so far with graphene os so I will, I'll be vulnerable for the internet, which is always a terrible thing. <laughs> Just but, don't read the comments. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. So I send Noah a message. I'm like, how do I do things with this? And he's like, what do you mean? It's just like any other Android. I'm like, no, it's not. Like I don't on on my 4A, I have a uh, an ellipsis in the middle of the bottom of the screen that I push to get all of the installed applications. And he's like, oh, you just swipe up. And every time I swiped up, what it did was bring up the open applications, didn't give me the application menu. It took me no word of a lie, like an hour to actually get it right. Because every once in a while I'd get it and I'm like, how did I do that? Um, oh, so I couldn't figure out how to pull up like applications. So I was you like, can build nothing containers on by here. hand, but you couldn't figure out how to get the app drawer to open on an Android phone. Yep, exactly. Okay. Uh, it was, you know, after I got it, I was like, oh, but... To me, that was brand new because I, I don't know what I did to this 4A because I've had it since it came out. Mm -hmm. But my previous phone worked like like my Nexus 5 worked like this, my 4A worked like this, and the previous one like that. And so to me, that's just how Android has worked in the you're, past. You're talking about the little ghost buttons at the bottom, like back, yep. you know, cascade and menu. Uh, well, there, there's actually it's actually six dot. I'm looking at my phone right now. It's in the middle of the screen, and there's a circle with six dots in it. Yeah. It looks very similar to other operating systems that you know you push that, and that shows up your sure. your application drawer. Okay. Right? Um, yeah. So, so, so out, that so, was funny. So out of the gate, so out of the gate, there's there's a bit of a learning curve, and it doesn't really guide you through it. But presumably, eventually, you figure out, and you've got the app drawer open, and you look, and there's some black and white apps. What was that about? Yeah, uh, I actually thought that there's something wrong with the phone because of my first experience in the phone. I thought, like, mm -hmm. is this in grayscale? Like, why is there no color here? Um, it turns out that that's just because that the apps that come pre-installed for whatever reason are in grayscale. I actually, I actually went and watched a bunch of YouTube videos of people first experiencing Graphene OS who had never done Android before, which was super helpful. Because the people that had used Android before just like got along with it fine. Like, I guess whatever the current version of Android is. I don't know. But I watched a bunch of people coming over from iPhone. It's like, oh, these people have the same problem that I do. Good. I don't feel quite <laughs> so bad. Well, you know, again, I think I think then this is why I, I we, we disclaimed this up front, right? Like it, the stuff that you use day in and day out, again, you wouldn't struggle with those things when you're talking about, you know, Kubernetes or containers or some stuff that, you know, a lot of other people would look and go like that's speaking Greek to me. So I, I think it's just, you know, what you have time in with. So as as you kind of go through there, did you were you able to get all of the necessary blocks loaded? Do you have all the apps that you were looking for? Are you able to do all of the things, even if it even if the the experience isn't perfect? Are you able to accomplish all of the tasks that you want to accomplish on Graphene OS that you were able to accomplish with your old Pixel, or is there some room for growth there still? I think largely I'm okay. Um, I had to find a couple of alternatives for some stuff, um, and some of it was positive. Like there's something called Dav Five X or Dav X5. I, I can't remember, mm -hmm. but I hadn't heard of it before, but I was trying to figure out like, how do I sync this with my next cloud? Because uh, whatever I was using on previously was not, was not functioning on graphene for whatever reason. Um, so I ended up just putting the play store on and I have, I have F-Droid on there and I pulled a bunch of stuff from F-Droid, but uh, largely I just used the play store and put it sandboxed. Um, yeah, I will say that you asked me about the experience. Mm -hmm. I've heard that people have issues with notifications um, in terms of being timely when you don't allow the Play Store to, to run all the time or whatever. Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced that. And that's probably a sensitivity issue. Like 
because I'm not constantly checking my phone, I mm -hmm. wait for my watch to ping me. I don't necessarily know that they're being delayed. Right. Um, you know, I get phone calls in. Oh, that was another thing. Okay. What happened with <laughs> so, phone calls? Um, I wasn't getting any phone calls. I I don't know what that was about, but I I found for the first multiple days I actually had to pick up the phone and dial out before someone would be able to dial in. It's like it's almost like it put the the cellular radio to sleep or something like that. Um and so that problem was really daunting until I dug through the menus and like, oh, well, use because I'm on T-Mobile, they have an option when it detects the SIM card to to use um Wi-Fi calling. And when I did that, I have no problem. But whenever it's on on the uh, 5G or the 4G network around here, whatever, the LTE network, mm -hmm. um, it's like the, the antenna goes to sleep and then now, now incoming that's... calls just go right to the voicemail. Is that still the case? Like if you turned off Wi-Fi right now, would I be able to call you? I have no idea. I just, because I don't wander very desk. far from the house right? and I don't take the phone when I do, like the turning on the Wi-Fi calling solved that issue for me. Where do you stand on this whole push towards mobile? And I guess what I mean by that is, so as the guy who leaves his phone on his desk, Graphene OS seems like it would appeal to you from the standpoint that it's going to, I mean, the, the advantage of even though you have Google Play services installed, it's only collecting data or only doing stuff, A, when it's running, B, it's it's sandbox. So it's it, it, there's a limit to what it's able to see. And the data that, their developers weren't able to get around feeding it. It's it's mock data. It's not real data. So it's fake sensor data. So it wants to detect accelerometer and all the rest of that. It's feeding it garbage data. It's not, so there's still an, a huge inherent privacy thing that I would think appeals to you, being you know this this person who like you 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 reluctantly use this thing as as so far as you need to to be able to get your job done and function in life and all the rest of it. But it isn't something that you consider integral to your to your person. It's just a thing and so as you view it that way how how do how does this help you and or where has been the pain points of pushing back towards mobile do you think it's gotten you further down the road or in some ways does it take it back because there are some things now that you can't do on the phone uh no i don't think that that i have changed appreciably like ultimately i would be happy with a flip phone except that i have some i have some requirements from clients to have sometimes their specific app to integrate with their IT or whatever. And then because I don't run Windows, I don't, I, mm. there is no Linux version of insert random IT app here. So mm -hmm. sometimes if I was running a Windows laptop, I could probably get away without having uh, a smartphone period because most of those things have a Windows app anyways. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that said, I use it the same way that I have used it before. I don't put financial data on here so i don't have banking apps i have none of that stuff never have mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. i draw a hard line on that and uh i don't know we we went to a concert but my wife always always has her iphone so she just had the tickets in in her apple wallet or whatever i have no idea how well that would have worked for this because yeah that so th so that's that's what i'm talking about so so in a way in that at least in that instance you sidestep the problem because your wife was doing it right it would be interesting to see how you overcome that challenge either by loading the software on graphene os and it works or by hey ups mode right hey i'm standing here you're telling me i need this thing i don't know this thing what are we going to do about it and you're the kind of gracefully stubborn person that could <laughs> that could dig his feet in the and then you'll stand there and and it would be interesting to see how that plays out 
Yeah, so uh, on the ticket thing, mm -hmm. they actually don't allow you to take a screenshot or print it out. Mm -hmm. I actually read through the fine print and it's like, this will not be allowed. You yep. have to have it in a phone wallet. Um, so I don't know that there would have been a way around it for me. I Yeah, if I wasn't going with my wife, I have no idea what I would do because be my normal answer to that is like take a screen. Even, even the airplane apps, I take a screenshot of them because of... Um, issues in the airplane like sometimes yeah. what will happen is like you board the airplane and then you have to deplane and get on a different plane mm -hmm. and since i travel enough it has bitten me enough times where as soon as they scan it and they recognize you're on the plane they remove the ticket from your app yep. and then you go to scan into the next plane and yep. you can't because it's gone um and so, it's just a barcode anyway it is so so, yep. uh, so here here's here's i'm i'm interested in kind of the so I, I divide this into two categories so so far we've talked about the platform which sounds like it's more or less working for you the second thing i want to talk about is i want to talk a little bit about the hardware so the hardware is a bit more tricky a there's not a whole lot of choices if you're talking about grafino s there's literally no choices you're stuck with a pixel that's what it runs on period end of story uh and but there's i would tell you that the security trade-offs are worth the the being stuck to just the pixel so there's that but if you were willing to use Lineage, which argue, you know, I mean, again, comes to Googleify, there isn't Google Play services installed, but you can put it on all the rest of it. But it gives you an access to a wider range of devices. Was that in your consideration, or did you look at it and say, no, I had a Pixel Four, it worked great. I have Pixel Six, it works great. Now I just have the ability to use a more freedom respecting software on there. So I run Lineage on my Nexus Five and my Honor Six X, so previous ones. So I have lots of experience flashing lineage. I have a lot of love for that project. The decision for the Pixel was, hmm, which one is going to be best supported across, like, across the board? And that tends to be Samsung, if you can get them unlocked, and the Google phone, the Google branded phones. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about lineage or any of the others. It has to do with sheer volume in the market. And so picking a random phone means that like my nexus 5 the thing from like 2014 mm -hmm. still gets once a year updates to lineage like you're not gonna find and that's just because somebody in the community just wants to keep pushing that along so you're not gonna find that with i don't know i'm gonna pick on nokia mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. right because there just aren't enough there isn't enough user base with that phone to keep it going that long so it was purely a this is the most compatible and keeps my options open. Uh, long run. 855-450 Noah. That's 855-450-6624. Or you can join us in the interactive mumble room, mumble.minddrip1.com. Um, Sleuth, did you have thoughts on on uh, on mobile? Saw you jumping around in the chat room there. Maybe not. Feel free to pipe up if I'm wrong. Um, so, Steve, I wanted to dig in a little bit on. So, the to, to me, the the approach that I took when I and I just went through this myself, maybe maybe a month or two before you did, the approach that I chose to take was, I chose the tools that I thought would fit nicely in the final resting spot of Fossland, and I honed them in on quote unquote normal platforms, and then I found what I thought was the best Fossland solution, which in my case was Grafino S, like you. Um, and largely what I've done now is I've kind of dug in and I'm letting the chips fall where they may. So back to your UPS story, the ticket story, whatever else, my answer is going to be like, I'll just hand the phone and be like, here, if you can get your thing to work on my phone, here's my phone, but this is the phone I have. So what are we going to do about it? And I, I feel like 
I did myself well by, you know, I'd standardize on, on JMP for my phone calls and my text messages, so I didn't struggle with any of the uh, GSM thing. It was all coming in via IP anyway. All of the messaging stuff that I was using, all the apps that I were using were all open source, and it was interesting because things like Bitwarden surprised me. They obviously didn't have Bitwarden pre-installed in the Griffin OS phone, but when I went to Bitwarden's site, it says, oh, if you're using F-Droid, click here. And then you click there, and it tells you how to add a repository in in F-Droid, and then how to install Bitwarden from the repository. I thought, here it is. This is the beauty of using open source apps, is that they all land very super nicely on, on the end device. And I thought that was, the, I thought that was very useful. Um, the, but the last thing I kind of wanted to talk to you and kind of pick your brain about, when we look at purchasing phones or we look at purchasing technology in general, I think the question that we should be asking is, is this a tool or is it a consumable? So that is to say, for, to simplify that down a little bit, is it the saw or is it the saw blade? And then my 1B to that would be, are you paying for a saw or are you paying for a saw blade? Because let me tell you something. If you're spending $1,000 on a phone that you can't even change the battery in, then, and worse, you expect to throw the phone in the trash in a year or two years, or if you're lucky, five years, then let's be clear. You're buying a saw blade at the price of a new saw. You're throwing a new saw away every few years. And the planned obsolescence is primarily in the benefit of the device manufacturer. And sure, you get a new phone and every few years and there's it's a bit thinner and it's a bit lighter and there's a little bit more battery life and there's a nicer camera. And if you upgrade because you want a new fancy tool, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But at the beginning of the episode, I asked you and you said that you upgraded because you felt like you had to. You felt like they weren't going to give you any more updates. There's not going to be any more support. And so that to me is an artificial limitation. You're not upgrading because you need more horsepower because you need, you're doing the same things with the phone that you were doing back when you bought it. You're upgrading it because somebody is forcing you to. And I don't think that's okay. So the, uh, to add to that though, so the device manufacturers, they absolutely benefit from having these devices. But I think the other side of that is the OS developer is the actual driver because they're constantly adding new features and they're constantly adding new things that they want developers to include. And so you just look at the size of your apps. They're three, 400 megabytes. You could absolutely make that work inside of a web page, but they choose not to do that. They choose to pack it all into an app and ship it. And so I, I think... The, the large landscape is we're buying these disposable devices and paying a lot of money for them. And I, I think you bought your, your Pixel used, you said, but do you see that happening? Do you share that concern or is it more of a, nah, a few hundred bucks every few years is fine. And uh, that's just, it's just the price I pay to live in society where we just, we, we, we chug through tech. No, I hate it. Um, as I mentioned, I have my previous, I guess now three phones, they all still work. they the requirement for getting updates is what really drives this across the board. Um, the only exception to that was my 5X went, it, it kind of, uh, it had a very bad time after I got off a plane one time. I didn't drop it software-wise. It had a bad time. So that's when I bought the Honor because I was on the road and I needed something now. So the Android, like the default Android came and like borked itself. Mm. After I put Lineage on there, it has been absolutely fine. But I ended up having a new phone. So every time that I've had a new phone, it's it's literally because they're just like, no, nah, no more updates. Hmm. Like, well, yeah, that, so, that doesn't fly. To your point, you know, when, when I was a kid, if you would buy a thing, then you had a thing as long as you took care of it, you'd still have the thing. 
And I still have my Dell Inspiron 1100 that I bought with my own money that I earned at five fifteen an hour back in 2003. And it's, I bought it for $549 and it still turns on and it still boots. Now, I can still use the hardware to its full potential. Nothing has stopped me from doing it. Albeit, the full potential of that hardware tops out at a 32-bit processor, right? And like 64 megs of RAM. But at the end of the day, or maybe it's a little bit more than that, but not, not much. But you get, the, you get the point, right? There isn't an artificial limitation there. Now, you compare and contrast that. At Southeast Linux Fest a few years ago, we tried to install Linux on a Sony PlayStation. We couldn't get past the cloud stream. That's going to be every iPhone 10 years from now. Every cloud-dependent device five, 10 years from now is going to be e-waste. It's going to be junk. It's going to be trash. Yeah, it's it's sad. And uh, the last note I'll say on this, closing this out is mm. um, I learned, so I'm learning Spanish and what I learned, we I was reading an article with my teacher and what I learned was that, you know that a 30 gram battery will pollute three swimming pools worth of water or one square kilometer worth of uh, soil if it's buried. Wow. Yeah. Think about that. So Steve has made some progress on Graphene OS, landed himself on a nice new home on a mobile operating system. And with that, finally comes the introduction to Matrix. I'm so excited. So we got Steve on Beeper. And in part, it was this idea, this promise that if you sign up for the service called Beeper, it's Matrix underneath the hood, but the promise is that it lets you connect to multiple services. So you get the ability to connect to Telegram and Signal and Facebook and WhatsApp and Slack and Discord and LinkedIn and all sorts of different networks. You have the ability to do that. So, Steve, you went through this process, and I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on how you thought it was going with Beeper. So I, I guess I want to start back here. Again, the same way that I set up with the mobile phone thing with Beeper, I think it's important for people to understand you started on Telegram, you're happy on Telegram, everything works for you, all of the people that you want to talk about are on there, so you didn't really see a reason to move. So any, any, so we're, we're starting from the standpoint of we're not really solving a problem here. Everything is good and everything's working. So that raises the bar, right? It ha the, Anything to, to become something of interest to you, has to, it significantly raises the bar because it's, there's no itch to scratch, there's no problem, except for maybe I think there was some excitement of maybe getting some social networking out of your home and having one central point for that. But what were your expectations going into Beeper? What did you hope to accomplish or what were you hoping it would do for you? Well, the expectations are different than what I was trying to accomplish because okay. Noah likes to hype up the matrix and he was really uh, high on beeper still am. And so what I will say is that I, I expected quite a bit listening to Noah uh, and the app itself, the look of the app, it's well polished. It functions like I would expect it to generally speaking when it doesn't crash. Um, so I've had some, some paper cuts here and there, but in terms of what I was looking to accomplish, Honestly, it was just, I liked Pigeon back in the day when, mm -hmm. when we had AIM and MSN and all those sort of things. And I, I was an avid user of it where it would just kind of collate the services. Um, same thing with Trillion. And yeah. I was kind of looking at this in, in a similar light. Not that I connect to, I have like two active connections, one to Discord and one to Telegram, but then some ancillary to the Geek Lab. And I was going to make use of the text message bridge text bridging. So that's, okay. that's what I was setting out to do. Okay. And so you're in like maybe what, two, three weeks or so? 
Yeah, probably close to a month at this point. What was your impression of onboarding? And I ask that from the standpoint of anybody who's walked through Element Setup gets very confused. If you don't, if you understand encryption, and you like managing your own keys, Element's great. If you're a normal, I'm going to use the term muggle. If you're a muggle and you're walking around, you just I open the up and I download and I click sign in and then it texts me a code and I thought that Element can be very confusing to you. So from the onboarding side of it, how did you feel like it was getting signed up and signed in? Did you feel like it still had the same paper cuts that that Matrix had in the past when you used it? Or did it feel like every other app you've ever signed up for? No, I thought it was somewhere in between. It's definitely not okay. the it's definitely not on the Matrix side of things. Um, I found it was easy enough for me to navigate. I felt that if I gave it to my wife, there either would have been questions or she would have been thinking about it a little bit because the initial like I'm just onboarding, that's fine. But there was a ton of prompts and connecting multiple bridges required more interaction than what I was expecting. Okay, so the the, the bridge connecting. I'll tell you something I noticed. I thought beeper handled the encryption setup better than any other matrix client i've ever used except maybe siphon um however one of the things that they do they're very very good at sidestepping a huge problem that i've seen with element which is people set up encryption or rather they don't set it up and then they use it for a few months and then they get signed out or they get a new device and they go to sign in and then realize i don't have access to any of my old encrypted chats and then oh why'd that happen and they don't understand Beeper overcomes that problem by making you re-enter your encryption recovery key before it'll let you even complete the wizard. So I thought they did a good job there. Where I think it kind of falls down a little bit is, A, the key that it gives you is way too complicated to write down. It's a mix of capital and lowercase letters, and you just, people would be there for 10 minutes if they had to sit there and hack it out with a, with a number two pencil and a postcard. And they don't really give you any provided way to back it up electronically. So I think that's a potential paper cut for people. The other, but but on on the flip side, at least for me, it fundamentally allowed me to get connected to people from which I absolutely have no other connection. And and I, and and if I can for just a second, one of the things I think are frustrating is this idea of phone numbers. It seems to be the way that we do things. And you know what? Twenty years ago, when it was a copper line coming into my property, and there was a tariff and a fine for every second it was down. Well, and that's why there was always a dial tone. Then it made sense. Okay. But today you go sign up for a phone service. Your ISP is going to bring you a little ATA. They're going to plug it into your internet connection. And then the ATA going to convert IP traffic into a pot system. That isn't a tariff system. That really has no advantage. And oh, by the way, I can install an ATA just like they can. So, okay, now we're down to how reliable is the internet? Because if the internet goes down, so does the ATA. Well, guess what? Go read your ISP service agreement. Unless it's a business, it's large, largely best effort. So if I'm going to engage in communication, I'm going to bring that communication in via IP. And that's what most service providers are providing anyway, so that kind of makes sense. From that perspective, I see Beeper as like bridging as a service. It's cloud matrix. It's the easiest way for normal, for muggles to be able to get onboarded into matrix and they have polish in the app and they have a support team and a, and a decent UI. Once you got the bridges connected, one of the things I think is, is, is a real shortcoming in some of the bridging is if the bridge goes down, there is no way to tell in typical matrix that the bridge has failed. You're just not getting traffic until somebody calls you or faxes you or whatever. And they're like, Hey, you haven't responded to my message. And that's terrible, right? In beeper, they give you an indication as to which of the status of all of those bridges. So when they fail or when they go down, they don't fail silently. It gives you a message and allows you an opportunity to reconnect. 
How has the bridging, but once you got it set up, I understand there was a bit of friction there. Once you had it set up, have they stayed largely connected? Or if, if they've gone down, has that integration letting you know the status of the bridge been helpful to you? So the bridges that I use, which, like I said, are very minimal. I have the SMS one. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, all that's happening there is from your phone's SMS. When it receives it, Beeper does something to intercept the SMS and then send right. it back out. Yes. Right. So I expect that to be relatively flawless unless your phone has a problem because mm -hmm. it's not actually making a connection. So that that has worked just fine. Uh, side note, like getting the text messages on my desktop. That's super helpful. Yeah. Um, the other one is Telegram. I haven't seen that one go down. I have seen a few others go down multiple times. Uh, Facebook being yes. one of the primary ones that has gone down a ton since mm -hmm. I've been on. But I don't really care because that's not for me. I just, like Noah said, there's notifications that go out when mm -hmm. when the bridges are down. And that's how I know the bridges were down. So. <laughs> yeah, they, they're, they're pretty good about saying, like, here's their ETA and how they're going to get them back up and, and all the rest of that. So I, I think that's I think that's of interest. So where do you think the appeal for a, a product like Beeper is? I've seen interest from people that have iOS devices and they're excited about the, or excuse me, I've, I've seen excitement from people that do not have iOS to it, devices but want to get iMessage on their Android phone or on their Windows PC or on their Linux desktop or, or, or on Graphene OS or wherever, you're able to do that. I've also seen people interested in the idea that you can sign into one place and have all the communications hit there. Is Does that seem like the target audience and are they serving that audience well or do you, still, do you think there's some pretty rough edges and it's, we're still not ready for prime time? I think that it depends on uh, what your use case is. If you're like me with just, so I've got Discord and Telegram and SMS and it's been fine. Um, no issues there in terms of that. The one the one little niggly problem that I do have, I reported it to them and they're aware of it. When you get a message and it doesn't happen in all of the, um, in all of your chats, but if you mm -hmm. get a message, it'll just pop up. Like for example, I get messages from Home Assistant through Beeper and it'll just pop up and says, Home Assistant sent you a message. I'm like, that's great. What is it? Uh, so, so the watch seems to be hit and miss as to whether or not it'll actually display the message. Um, okay. And they're aware of that. And so that's been, I bring that up because you were asking about like paper cuts are ready yeah. for prime time. Like that's a thing, right? Um, even my wife who carries her phone around with her, she doesn't look to the phone. She looks at her watch before picking up the phone to see if that's something she wants to actively engage with. So sure. my impression is that a lot of people are going to interact that way. And so... I'd like to see that getting fixed as for who their target audience is and, and stuff like that. I mm -hmm. would assume it's for people like me that want the trillion or, you know, pigeon like experience where you're pulling everything into a single place because there aren't going to be a ton of people like me that just like outright block Facebook and other places. So my wife can't yeah. use MS like can't use messenger. Like, uh -huh. To be clear, that just sounded wrong. I don't do it so that she can't use Messenger. I do it because I don't allow Facebook on my network. I'm not going to allow their data mining to happen on my dime. You, you do it to I keep your family for. safe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that if that's their goal from my limited use case, I could see it functioning. I, I imagine that those bridges have to get a little more solid because the Facebook is going to be a primary one where people are going to use, I imagine. So I, I'm glad you pointed that out. So he, here's where I fell down on this. I I did a, a tremendous amount of reflection when we, when we said we were going to do this episode. I, I started thinking and it, and it really got the gears turning. 
And I and I went back and I thought for myself, like, what do, what was I setting out to accomplish, and, and and have I achieved it, and is it working, or am I lying to myself? And and what I realized was there, there really there are two things. The first is I want access to people to where they are. I want to move in. I want to be home. I don't want to leave for the next ten to twenty years. And in my lifetime, I started with IRC. I went to ICQ. I went to MSN Messenger, AOL Messenger, XMPP, Facebook Messenger, Google Voice, Viber, Telegram, Signal, and now Matrix. And with the exception of Matrix, I didn't choose any of the rest of those. Like, the crowd I ran with at the time, that's where all the geeks or the nerds or the people I wanted to talk to are. And as that tide has shifted, I've gone with it. But you know what occurred to me today? I've absolutely lost people with every one of those changes. And following that tide forces me every so often to have, I'm not going to maintain a presence on every one of those platforms. I'm just not, it's not going to happen. So if I'm going to stay in contact with those people, I have to find a way to be where they are. And I tried bridging on my own matrix server, but I ran into a lot of the same problems that you've probably run into, which is the bridges are good, but they're not perfect. Sometimes they crash. Sometimes there are problems. Other times you got to troubleshoot them. And I, I just don't have time for that. I don't have time to, to maintain a bridges to a bunch of things I didn't want to be on in the first place. And so what I like about Beeper, and then, and then you add to this, so just to tile this back to our phone discussion, I don't like the direction that we're going as a society. I don't want everything to have a phone number. You know why they do that? Because phone numbers are never free. And so phone numbers have billing contracts and billing contracts means payment info and payment info means positive ID match. So they have a way to go find an address for somebody to knock on to say, who are you and why X and it alleviates liability for them. I don't want to participate in that. I don't want my kids to participate in that. Phone numbers are an outdated concept. It's an outdated way to do things. And as I previously said, there's no advantage of having a phone line run to my home anymore because all of the advantages that were there are now gone. So I want to avoid that in as many places as possible. And I've given up trying to avoid that in things like banks and government entities because they just, they're tied to it. So fine, but I will protect my kids from that. And as a kid who grew up on the internet, I believe people should be able to take a different persona. I'd be able, I believe they should be able to screw up. I believe they should be able to start over and I believe they should be able to try again. And I think that's one of the best things about the internet is you can just invent different personas and become those personas. And when they become trashed or when you make a mistake, you get a do-over. And so I've, I've largely decided I am going to camp out where I'm at. I'm going to maintain a bridge to wherever people are for as long as I can. And when those platforms come and go, my island of, 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 of solidarity will still be standing. And you know why? It's not because I'm some genius who's cracked the code or anything. It'll be standing because it's built on a bunch of other really fantastic FOSS projects. And they all come together to provide a service and the instrumentation to deploy that service that can be done from scratch within minutes. And I guess this comes back to like a chip on my shoulder. Very Like I took all these tech classes back in high school and early in college, and I would learn things about Microsoft Office and became a Microsoft Office user specialist. And I understood everything about MS Publisher and Visual Basic and all of these tools. And then I would go home and I would like, oh, this is great. I know how to write Visual Basic. I'm going to open up Visual Studio. And how do I get it? And oh, oh, it's $1,000. Well, I make five fifteen an hour. I can barely afford two hundred dollars to put gas in my car. There's no way I'm going to be able to buy a, a one thousand or fifteen hundred dollar piece of software. And I know there's somebody there writing an email right now saying, "Well, but today they have solutions to address that." And there's the MSDN and student discounts and all the right. But at the end of the day, 
That's all lacquer to disguise the fact that it's not yours and they can pull the rug out from you at any time. And because of that, and because people mostly aren't nerds and geeks, and owning it bites them in the butt more often than they see benefit from it, they don't care about the independence. They don't care about owning the thing. They largely just want it to work. And so that leads to a lot of people opting for the cloud. And that's the migration we're seeing right now. People want to know how much a month to get me access to the cloud. So that's a really long-winded way of saying, like, if I'm going to take that approach of, well, I want my cake, and it's not my cake, but it's their cake, but it's easy, and it's free, and so I don't want to use it, but I like it. To me, that's what Beeper represents. It represents the cloud version of, man, I can still sign in with Element. I can still sign in with GoMux. I would very much appreciate the ability. The only thing I'd really need to complete that example perfectly is I need Beeper to send that message, all that messaging to my own home server. And then I'll really feel like I'm onto something. But I would absolutely pay these guys to do bridging as a service. Let me host my server and I can be on my island of stability and you deliver the messages to me. And I think that's abs- I think that's not a bad way to go, but I also think Beeper provides a re- the easiest on-ramping yet for muggles to get introduced to something like Matrix. I also wanted to draw your attention to this article that came from ARS Technica today and it's funny as I was reflecting on this I was thinking man, back in the day I had all these things and I had, you know I was really excited about Microsoft and what they were doing and I just thought that was so cool and then I realized how burned I got and that's kind of what drove me towards open source and you know now Microsoft loves Linux and all the rest of it so things have changed right wrong headline Python analytics inside of Excel JT covered this in the Linux newswire today but Microsoft has partnered with the Python analytics repository Anaconda and the idea is to bring libraries like Panda and stats model and matplotlib into Excel. So Python Excel runs on Microsoft's cloud servers, which they, it's the most secure thing ever. Just ask Microsoft because Python runs in these little things called containers and it has no access to the device or network or tokens. Microsoft says that Python Excel only can really talk to each other through limited functions that can only return results, not macros or VBA code or other data. So Microsoft is offering this, what they're calling the peanut butter and, you know, peanut butter and chocolate combination that is going to eventually go behind a paywall. And so if, if you want to use this, this thing powered by open source and containers and Linux, if you want to use that thing, all you got to do is be a member of Microsoft's 365 Insider program, then join their beta channel, then have the latest version of Excel updated to at least build 16818. And uh, then as long as you have an active Microsoft 365 subscription at $13 a month, uh, you too can leverage this great open source technology that Microsoft has now baked into Excel. So here we are 20 years later, and you know what? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Microsoft is leveraging containers behind a paywall. I don't know. I just, I just, I find that rich. And then I, I, to, to leave us on a high note, I would compare and contrast that with the youth of today. So I had an interesting experience my childhood, my journey through technology was filled with roadblocks by way of, oh, that's proprietary or there's a paywall or there's whatever else. In an effort to try to get my son to play more with endless OS, he didn't want to load it on his laptop because he was afraid that he'd have to reset everything up. So I said, you know, you could probably use Ansible to do that. And I walked him through putting together a little Ansible script that would do that. And I would describe Ansible, for those of you that haven't played with it, is the most useful hat trick anybody has ever taught me on a computer. And so together we put together a, a simple little Ansible playbook for his laptop that would install all of the software that he wanted. Then he actually went out and tweaked it to make it change the time the way he wanted it in his background and all the rest of it. 
And so he'd done that a few weeks ago, and I thought that was kind of cool. But then last weekend, his mother is reluctant to reload her laptop because she says, well, it's going to take me two hours. It's a two-hour commitment to reinstall and restore all the software and all the data. So my 12-year-old works with his mother, and together they rebuild her laptop using an Ansible playbook. And I thought to myself, that's incredible. And there's somebody out there, and they're going, but Noah, that's like 12 lines. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Simplicity is the ultimate form of sophistication. And so if you can set up one computer properly with like 12 lines, as long as you are capable of adding a bunch of IP addresses into a plain text file, and those machines have access to SSH, then you can set up 12 million computers perfectly every time with the exact same amount of effort and the exact same amount of knowledge at your, your part. And to me, that is so powerful and such a drastic departure from what I grew up with. This very powerful, very accessible technology is now available to anyone. I don't know. I just, I think that's really cool. Any uh, any thoughts before we wrap up for the for the evening? I mean, it's always nice to see open source pushing forward. I uh, I think that a lot of us got into this. Uh, a lot of us of a certain age got into this because we were able to get help because we were able to get our hands on software that would actually do a thing. For me, for me, it was CentOS. Right? Okay, that was that was kind of the thing. I'd been using Linux on my desktop for a long time, but I hadn't. I hadn't really used it to employ any kind of skills aside from light scripting and some stuff that I did for presentations. But aside from that, like it was really just a toy. But then being able to run, you know, CentOS, the the enterprise operating system, the community enterprise operating system at a time where I sometimes didn't have enough money for groceries every month, kind of like you. You know, there was no way that I was going to make an IT career out of Microsoft because I couldn't. I couldn't I didn't have Windows. Yeah, I could, I couldn't afford the server. There's just there was just <laughs> nothing about it. So, Tubit asks in the chat room, "What do you guys think of the Pine Phone and the Pine Phone Pro?" Haven't used the Pine Phones. Um, part of it is just because it comes. It came by at times where it was like, well. I already have a phone and mm. I don't need to buy another phone. And, and like you said, the bar has to be pretty high for me to move because it's, it's just one of those things that as much as I like to tinker around with technology, when we're talking about a thing, like a phone is, is a black box utility for me, largely mm -hmm. speaking, mm -hmm. and it needs to do its job. And so if it was like a tablet or something like that, fine, you know, I'll tinker around with that sort of stuff. I've ripped apart tons of tablets. Um, but the phone is just is a hunk of glass that just needs to do a a specific thing and now multiple things. So never really looked at the the I never really looked at the Pine phone or the Fair phones uh, to be honest. Any kind of seriousness. So I I don't have an experience with the regular Pine phone, but I absolutely have. I have I bought a Pine phone Pro. I, I started with the Pine Book Pro, and I I said the day I got it, and I will continue to say this. Every Pine device I've ever purchased, I felt like I spent a dollar amount and I got twice the value back in in terms of, of what I got. If I went and spent $200 at a big box store for a phone, I would expect half of the phone that I got with my Pine Phone Pro. Um, I liked it so much that I went back and bought two more. I bought one for my wife and then I bought one to play with. So I could have one to kind of test as a daily driver, one to play with, and then my wife had one. And be first to tell you it's not to a place i think you can use it as a daily driver some people can if you're committed enough it's fine but there's a 
decided difference. But I mean, it, it, it functions on a level of an entry-level Android phone. Go buy the cheapest Android phone that you've ever used. That's roughly the experience, except a lack of apps because you're using, you know, Plasma Mobile or whatever. And I know that's not just Plasma Mobile because I saw the Plasma Mobile team at, at um, Southern California Linux Expo this year, and it was so fast on the OnePlus and on the Lenovo device that I legitimately thought they were running some sort of KDE skin on top of Android. It was that, that performant. So what do I think about it? I think it's a fantastic phone. I think it's the absolute easiest phone to load a ROM on because you plug it into your computer or you they have a utility that you boot off of an SD card and then you can just flash to the EMMC like you would any other flash drive and then it boots into the operating system. So from that perspective, it's great. Hardware kill switches are great. Schematics published are great. User replaceable components, fantastic. Price, unbelievable. So I think it's a great device in that sense. I don't think it's going to replace your Samsung Galaxy or iPhone any time in the, in, in the near future. I also got the Pine Tab 2, and albeit there is a well, it was a gross oversight with the Wi-Fi chip, I'm glad that they sent it out to people because people like me didn't really care. I looked at it and I went, you know what? What I really wanted that device for, I wanted to load PDFs on it so I could play drum charts. That's what I was interested in, and I was able to accomplish that with my Pine, Pine Tab 2, and it, today it works for that. Uh, and and if I if somebody sold me a device just for loading music charts on, I would buy that device. And if the uh, the the requirement for the device was there was a little cable that you plugged into a computer and drug the charts over, that would be just fine. So to me, it's just an added benefit that when I plug in the little cable, connects to a Type C dock, plugs into an Ethernet cord, and uh, I can browse the network and pull the charts over. Works just fine for my purposes. So I, again, I would tell you I got more than my value out of that. Sharp, sharp, sharper 0746 in the chat room says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I hope this message finds you well. I was wondering if you could help me figure something out. I'm trying to figure out how to back up Docker containers, and I'm not sure where even to start. Do you have any suggestions? Thanks in advance. So, Steve, that's squarely in your corner. So, backup Docker containers, that could mean a ton of different things. So, does that mean the data in the Docker container? Uh, you don't back up Docker containers like you do virtual machines. They're completely meant to be ephemeral throw throw them away if they break throw them away keep your data separate that's that's how containers are meant to be stored so when i back up a container such as it is the way that you do that is to store the container definition what does it network look like like if you're using docker for example make store the docker compose file if you're using something else just store the container definition file so that you can rebuild the container because ultimately the paradigm is designed for you to rebuild the container every time you need to and just attach the storage wherever whatever data should be in this container should just be attached from somewhere else. It needs to live outside of the container. Mm. So hopefully that helps. The, the best way I've heard it described is when we say containers, think of disposable Tupperware, not your, your nice Pyrex. Sure. Um, it's the, the container you throw away. It's just the thing that's inside. It's the it's the data that's connected to that that we care about. Yeah, it's kind of like that that really poorly poor quality plastic bag that you get at the at the grocery store. It's meant to be there long enough to get the stuff that's inside there to a destination, and that's ultimately what the container is for. You don't really care about the bag. You care about the stuff in the bag. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Hey, an update for those of you looking for the desktops that a gentleman was giving away. He's given us permission to put his email out there, so we'll have it for you in the show notes. Huckleberry582 at gmail.com. Email him, send him a shipping label. He will ship you a computer. 
They're just trying to get rid of them. So we're trying to cut down on the e-waste. If you know of a uh, group that could benefit from one, hit them up. We're on Twitter. I'm at Ask Noah. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Evans. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're also on Matrix, the Geek Lab, colon, LinuxDelta.com. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Noah Show.com.